from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 24th. Today, Brexit after Theresa May. How the fast pitch is changing modern baseball. And a travel reporter on some of the most common scams targeting tourists. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honor of my life to hold. The second female prime minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. British Prime Minister Theresa May is stepping down. She's resigning because of Brexit. Brexit has eaten her lunch. Bill Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. He says that Theresa May's resignation leaves the UK in a precarious position, especially when it comes to Brexit. She is going to stick around until June 7th as the leader of the Tory party, uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, and then there is going to be a leadership challenge among several a dozen candidates to see who will replace her. So she will be in the driver's seat through Donald Trump's visit at the beginning of June. Uh, but she will likely be gone sometime in early midsummer. Why is she resigning? She vowed to get Brexit passed, to deliver it. She failed three times in the House of uh, Commons, as you well know. She had this fourth attempt that she was kind of ginning up just the other day. A serious offer to MPs across Parliament, a new Brexit deal. And everyone just said it was just a non-starter. Why are you trying? And her own party just kept telling her, go away. So she took the hint and... She is no longer going to be prime minister sometime in July. So she's basically giving up and throwing her hands in the air. Yes, and it's very hard for Theresa May to give up because that's her alpha and omega, her stubbornness and her her tenacity. So the tenacious Theresa May has thrown in the towel. Um, She couldn't get this Brexit deal through. Uh, Her own party is tearing itself in half. There were some elections here on Thursday that we won't know the results of until Sunday night, early Monday morning. But those are the European Parliament elections. And a new party started by this character named Nigel Farage is going to clean their clocks. So, yeah, she it's as as it has been and as it shall be, it's Brexit. So now that she's out, what does it mean for the future of Brexit? For the future of Brexit, it means that a bunch of conservative party candidates are going to vie for leadership to become prime minister. Probably someone like Boris Johnson, though never say this will happen, but Boris Johnson is the lead contender. Boris Johnson is a hard Brexiteer. And so Boris's basic line is, I will go back to Brussels and get us the deal that we need. And if we don't get it from those wily Europeans, we will leave the European Union with no deal and we will set sail on our own and proceed to trade with Europe under World Trade Organization WTO rules. That's a pretty ominous future. 
oh, it's totally ominous. The pound is, is tanking and the stock markets are getting a little wobbly. And the Europeans are, well, they don't like their hair on fire, but you know what I mean. They're, uh, they're upset. So that's very much in a possible future. So when we last talked about this, the new deadline for Brexit was October 31st. What does this mean for that deadline? The old deadline is still the new deadline. Um, Britain is, has until October 31st to leave. Uh, if it doesn't leave, it has to go hat in hand and ask the Europeans for another extension or decide that they don't want Brexit, which I don't think they're going to do. So they, they either have to get it done by October 31st or ask for another extension. Assuming someone like Boris Johnson wins and wants to reopen negotiations, his way or the highway, and they agree, okay, Boris, let's have another chat, then they could kick the can down the road and we'll be talking about Brexit in 2020. Bill, thank you so much. Anytime. Happy to do it. Bill Booth is the London Bureau Chief for The Post. Well, we are watching a really, really good baseball team against a really, really bad baseball team. I'm at Camden Yards with sports reporter Dave Shinen, where the Yankees are playing the Baltimore Orioles. The bases are loaded, but the seats, not so much. Oh, like I said. <laughs> so it's already 3 nothing. The Orioles haven't even gotten a single out yet. It's a home run, something that's happening at record rates in 2019. And according to Dave, that can be traced in part to something that's called pitch velocity, a.k.a. the fast pitch. I think it's safe to say that even... Babe Ruth would be helpless at the plate against what the average major league hitter today is facing. Dave says that pitch velocity is the root of all kinds of problems that baseball is facing. Boring games, longer innings, poor ticket sales. That's all because baseballs are being thrown faster than ever before. So when you talk about velocity of pitches, like what are we actually talking about? Well, we're talking about the fastball, which is the basic fundamental unit of pitching before there was ever a curveball or a slider or a changeup or a knuckleball or a spitball or whatever, there was a fastball. Fast, hard-throwing pitchers have always been sought after. It's always been a fascination for fans who could throw the hardest. You know, a hundred years ago, Walter Johnson was maybe the most famous pitcher in baseball in the 1920s and in the teens, and it was because he could throw harder than anybody else. Now, we couldn't measure it back then, but there was a fascination with him. He was called the Big Train. He was one of the most famous, most legendary pitchers in history, and it's because he threw harder than anybody else. But now we're seeing a lot more people, a lot more pitchers, being able to throw really fast and really hard. Right. So it's become sophisticated to the point where pitchers can train specifically for velocity. They can go to an off-season training facility that essentially their mission is to gain you two, three, four miles per hour on your fastball in one off-season. Driveline baseball is retained by multiple MLB teams and many of the elite division... It's also become sophisticated to the point where front offices and executives and talent evaluators now select 
prospects for velocity number one. That's the number one criterion. So between those two forces, you're now seeing the average velocity in the game ticking up and up and up and up and up to the point where you wonder how high can it go. You know, at a young age, that was the... (laughs) That was the thing that I always looked at, how hard did I throw, and uh, you know, you always wanted to be that guy that kind of threw the hardest. And Dylan Batances of the New York Yankees is a great example of the new trend in baseball. He's six foot eight. He throws uh, generally in the upper 90s, but he has been clocked as high as 102 miles an hour. If you see over 100, you kind of get like a little extra adrenaline boost. And you try to throw a little harder. You feel you hear it from the crowd too, don't you? Especially at Yankee Stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. they they le- definitely let you know in Yankee Stadium. The two-two. He got him. A hundred miles an hour. That's an impressive eighth inning for Dylan Batances. He gets Davis. Kinsler, and then he strikes out Miguel. What has happened over the years is that there's many more pitchers who throw as hard as him now, whereas when he first broke in, um, there was almost nobody throwing as hard as him. You know, it's definitely a lot different. Uh, you know, before, if you threw 95, that was amazing. Now, I feel like, you know, 95 is still hard, but it's like it's normal. Do you think that's a good thing, though? Because some people are saying that, like, because the pitches are so fast, that it means that there are more strikeouts or more home runs, but not much of the in-between. And that, at least for people watching, that it makes the game less interesting. Do you think that's... Well, I mean, uh, I I don't know. For me, I feel like it's it's fun. You know, I I enjoy striking guys out. (laughs) I mean, so for me, that's what I try to do. You know, for me... It's a cat and mouse game. You know, you try to make pitches. I'm going to try to strike you out, and you're going to try to either get a hit, home run, or whatever. Obviously, home run is better for those guys, but I try to strike you out. This idea that the speed of the pitches is changing all these other ways that baseball functions, that's not just like a theory that you have. I mean, you've done the math to show all the ways that this has repercussions on the other things that happen during a game. Right. I mean, there's been uh, so much data in baseball. This is the era of data, the era of analysis. And there's smart people who have figured out that velocity rules. There was one study that showed that the longer a pitcher held a ball, held the ball for every second he held the ball between pitches, his velocity increased by 02 of, of, of a mile per hour. and So it's an incentive for people to be taking a longer right. time between their pitches. And, and there's a cause and effect there thing because by doing that, you can gear your body up to throw even harder and it manifests itself in added miles per hour. But that's a problem for baseball. That's more dead time. That's adding seconds and minutes to a game. And it also affects the way that people are able to hit. So one effect of velocity has been to create what we call in baseball the three true outcomes because they don't require any defense at all. Home runs, walks, and strikeouts. Those three things are climbing and climbing and climbing at the expense of everything else. The home runs, strikeouts, and walks are now 35.4% of all plate appearances in baseball in 2019. That means there's fewer balls in play than ever before, less action than ever before, less involvement of the defense than ever before. And people notice that, right? I certainly hear from readers and fans, and they're becoming, you know, turned off by the way the game is played. 
Uh, I would think I liked it years ago much, much better than I enjoy it today. When you have to go to a ball game or sit and watch a ball game on TV, it's like never ending. It, it's changed a lot, but I love baseball. I've, I've lived in Baltimore all my life, so I've been coming to watch the Orioles play since the 60s. There are times when the games can you can almost nod off. Uh, and this is coming from a diehard fan. Diehard fan. And I have to say that's a sentiment that's shared by a lot of people within the game as well. People, scouts and executives whose job it is to watch the game intently are telling me that it's, you know, it's unwatchable. I personally feel that there's something lost because we used to bunt, hit and run, steal. There was a lot of exciting parts of the game. Rick Dempsey was a catcher for 24 years in the big leagues. Uh, He was the 1983 World Series MVP for the Baltimore Orioles. Everybody's gotten away from the razzle-dazzle, the bunt, the hit and run, the fake bunt, that sort of thing, getting those infielders to move around a little bit. I mean, he's, he's among those who have said, you know, plenty of times that the way the game is played today is just not as exciting or enticing as it was uh, in the time where, when he played. They focus more on velocity now just from the very beginning, even when you're an amateur. Uh, a lot of scouts won't even look at you unless you're throwing 95 to 100 miles an hour. One of the most important ways in which velocity has changed the game is the use of relief pitchers. For as long as anybody has been watching baseball, starting pitchers have been uh, deployed in, in hopes of going seven, eight, even nine innings, completing a game. But what teams have figured out is that, well, if relief pitchers can throw harder, let's use relief pitchers more than starters. And more frequently than ever are coming out in the fourth or fifth inning And you start the parade of relief pitchers coming in from the bullpen in short bursts, throwing 98 to 100 miles an hour. But that parade of relief pitchers and and pitching changes stops the game. And that is one of the, I would say, the the worst and most visible manifestations of, of the velocity problem. What is the solution for this then? Can you just tell pitchers, like, you shouldn't be pitching so fast so frequently? You know, Major League Baseball is trying to find solutions for for some of these problems. But to this point, they've been mainly treating the symptoms, you know, such as trying to limit the use of relief pitchers, minimize the rosters so that you can't carry an unlimited number of pitchers. But increasingly, baseball is looking at the root cause here, which is the velocity. And the most intriguing experimental rule proposal is going to be tried in 2020 in the Independent Atlantic League, which is to push the mound back by two feet. The the mound has been at 60 feet, six inches since the 1890s, and it's been considered, you know, sacred. But I think Major League Baseball now sees that that is one way to perhaps minimize the effect of velocity. You push the mound back by two feet, you give the hitter uh, a few extra milliseconds of reaction time, and you reduce the effect of velocity and maybe restore the equilibrium in the game. I think that in some ways, this is really ironic, right? Because 
It's really exciting to see people break records in terms of the speed of pitches, to be able to pitch balls faster than anyone ever has before. But then at the same time, with that achievement comes this way that it changes the game that a lot of people agree isn't very good for baseball. Right. I mean, there is something exciting about a Roldis Chapman coming in and throwing 103, 104. There's a visceral feeling that takes over a ballpark when you see 103 pop up on the digital readout. That one at 106. That would be a new record for the hardest pitch ever thrown. He set the mark last year. But what's being lost in baseball is the nuance. And it's always been a game of nuance. You're losing the 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 single <laughs> a single base hit that's becoming um, less frequent than ever before you're you're losing things like the stolen base the bunt the hit and run play a lot of strategy and nuance is, is lost from the game when all it is is power versus power Dave Shinen covers national baseball for the post And now, one more thing for your summer travel plans. The only scam I have encountered traveling is a stranger giving you a gift and then demanding payment. A cab driver in Dubai who would not accept my money. I thought we'd made an agreement, but he didn't see it that way. And at that point, you're kind of, you know, you're tired. You just realize that the guy kind of switched the price on you. Earlier, he, we had been pickpocketed. Young women will approach you. They'll have, like, bouquets of lavender or rosemary. The person handed me one, and I just thought it was a nice thing. And if you take it, then they ask you for money. I tried to give it back, and he wouldn't take it. If someone sprays mustard or something like that across you, and you take your hand off of your purse or wallet to brush the mustard off, that that's their opportunity to grab your wallet and run. He did feel somebody reaching into his pocket and taking his wallet, but there was no way to tell who. The other day I was walking through the National Mall and I saw a man dressed like a Buddhist monk and he was talking to a tourist and showing him a clipboard with a petition on it to build a temple. And then he slid a bracelet made of prayer beads onto his wrist. And the man started to pull out his wallet and I couldn't not say anything. And I approached him and I said, I'm so sorry, sir, but this man is scamming you. My name is Andrea Sachs, and I'm a travel writer at The Washington Post, and I've been in that department since 2000. I think that travel scams happen more often than we know, but a lot of people will not report them or share this experience with friends or family because they're embarrassed. And that's what State Department told me, too. They don't get reports from it. Embassy doesn't really hear about it because people are ashamed because it's not a crime. It's just an embarrassing slip up where it could be prevented mm -hmm. and they just weren't aware. Who really wants to deal with the police when you're on vacation? I was embarrassed and she was gone, so I just had to go ahead and pay for it. So there are many ways to avoid travel scams. For example, when you take a cab, make sure that the meter works. Make sure that they turn on the meter. There's a lot of counterfeit money out there, so either use an ATM or go to a bank or your hotel. For anyone that gives you a gift, just say no. Just don't take it. It's not being rude. If someone hands you a rosemary or bracelet made out of prayer beads, just politely decline and walk away. Occasionally, uh, someone might run into you intentionally, 
and then they will create a fuss and they will demand money for the problem to go away. If that happens, call the police. If the police are corrupt, then you should call the State Department. If you rent a vehicle, a car, or a jet ski, or even a bike, take pictures of it and make sure that it's not damaged. Upon your return, they might claim that it's damaged, so you'll have proof with your pictures. If someone comes up to you and says, oh, would you like a picture of all of you, your whole family, or your group of friends, say no, because they will take your camera and run away. There is a fine balance in understanding, reading people, and quickly being on alert if something seems suspicious. It's just being prepared, I think. It's understanding these scams are out there, and you go with that knowledge, and then if something looks strange, you can connect it to that scam and say, oh, I'm in the middle of being scammed. <laughs> like, that's when I saw the monk. I'm like, oh, my God, it's really happening. <laughs> Andrea Sachs is a travel reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 